0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, come and study all of these four Gospels. Uh, we thank you that you've given us these multiple records so that we can uh, have some evidence for the rest of the world that your word is true. Uh, we thank you for each one in its individual character. We pray for your blessing tonight as we study primarily Luke um, at the uh, birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, this is our third session in the life of Messiah, and we are finally to the birth narratives of Jesus Christ. This is sort of a prologue. Mark doesn't cover any of these topics because this is not part of the, uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ, but Luke, which is concerned with Jesus Christ as the Son of Man and thus his birth, does cover this in quite extensive detail. In fact, we get two chapters about the uh, preparation and birth of Jesus Christ. And it actually starts with a character who is supposed to precede him, uh, who is John. So we get two different announcements, one of the forerunner, John, and then one of Jesus Christ. So Luke opens up with this character, Zacharias. He is a priest during the days of Herod, and Herod, we will find, died in 4 B.C. That might cause a bit of an issue for church history, as the church has uh, generally assigned the birth of Christ to either 1 B.C. or 1 A.D., Uh, We're going to look at the actual birth year of Christ, or as close as we can get to it, based on biblical evidence rather than church tradition. Um, So hopefully we'll have a pretty good answer as we go through this. But these first two characters that Luke introduces us to are Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Now these are going to make a bit of a play on words in the Hebrew. Zacharias' name means Jehovah Remembers, and his wife Elizabeth, her name means God's oath. And we're going to see how God is faithful to his oath, how he remembers it. And after 400 plus years of silence, God restores the office of prophet to Israel, and will present them with the forerunner to Jesus Christ, who is John the Baptist. Now Zacharias is a priest in the temple, and we're going to encounter plenty of priests uh, as we go through these gospels. So it's important to understand uh, some of the different layers of priesthood. In 1 Chronicles 24, David, recognizing that the priesthood was so large that it was hard to actually uh, get all the priests serving, they, uh, there were too many of them. He divided them into 24 different courses. So that each course would serve for two weeks out of the year in the temple. This allowed for, the, for all of the priests to be cycled through. However, in five BC, or the fifth century BC, rather, after the Babylonian captivity, only four repre- or four uh, courses were represented in the return to Israel. So these 24 courses had to be redivided. Uh, out of these four remaining courses. When they did that, they redistributed into 24, but they kept the original names. So the four that returned, um, you can find them in Ezekiel 2, I think around verse 39, uh, took on the names of the other 24. So when we read that uh, Zacharias was from the course of Abijah, this does not mean that he is actually a descendant of Abijah. This just means that that is the technical priesthood course that he is in. Now, by the first century, uh, there were quite a few priests. In fact, there were about 18,000 common priests by the first century. These were divided into seven or to 24 courses of about 750 uh, common priests. But only 50 were needed for each temple service, which was, again, two weeks out of each year. So of these 18,000, it's very likely that Zacharias would only serve one time in his entire life. And of these 50 priests who were serving it was very unlikely that Zacharias would be the one chosen to present the incense offering at the temple, which was the most dangerous job by a Jewish reckoning, but also the most honored of the common priest's service in the temple. And it's exactly when he is presenting this sacrifice of, a, uh, of incense Which is supposed to create a sweet smelling savor representing the continual prayers of Israel to God. It is at this time that he is visited by an angel. And this angel stands on the right side of the temple and speaks to Zacharias. Now, his reaction might cause us a bit of wonder why he's so scared. Now, there's a simple answer that I don't think is the best, that sometimes angels are scary. Uh, They have lots of different forms they come in, but this angel is Gabriel. He comes in the form of a man. So it's not an angel that is shocking to look at, necessarily. So why is he afraid? It has more to do with what he is doing than the angel itself because it was well known among the Jews that you do not offer the burnt uh, incense improperly. In fact, one of the very first temple services here, in which Nadab and Abihu, two of the four sons of Aaron, offered the incense improperly. In Leviticus 10:1 through 2, it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them they did this in a way that God had not told them to do and because they offered this improper sacrifice fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord now the presence of the Lord here would be in the holy of holies in the uh, just behind the veil in the holy place where Zacharias is standing offering this incense. So when he saw an angel appear beside the altar, he was sure that he was about to die. He expected that he had offered the incense improperly in some way and that this angel was here to strike him dead In fact, we find that instead of striking him dead, he's going to strike him mute. But that's going to be because of an improper reception of the message of the angel, not because he was offering the sacrifice improperly. Now, the message that this angel has for Zacharias is that he is going to have a son, and that he should name his son Yohanan, which in the Hebrew means Jehovah is gracious. And He is. After centuries, the Lord is returning to dwell among His people. Since the 5th century BC, when the Shekinah glory left the temple in Ezra 8, the Lord has not dwelled among His people. And here, God is being gracious to Israel in restoring His presence among them, but also in bringing the promised Messiah. Now, he tells uh, Zacharias that his son will be a Nazarite from birth. The laws of the Nazarite we find back in Numbers 6. And it says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them when a man or woman makes a special vow, a vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh dried grapes all the days of his separation. He shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape vine, from the seeds even to the skin. Now, here in number six, we see that this is a vow that a man or a woman takes willingly. And in the second part, in verse, or in verse four rather, we see that all the days of their separation, they are to do this. It was for a specific period of time. So a man or a woman would take on this vow of separation, much in the same way as the church might take on a period of fasting. But it was not to last forever. However, there were three men born in biblical history which were Nazarites from birth. The first was Samson, who was unfaithful to his vow. The next was Samuel, who was faithful to his vow. Now, this is John who will be faithful to his vow of a Nazarite, this vow from birth. This separates him for the service of God. Samuel was used in the service of God to bring about the Davidic household. Here, John is being faithful to the Lord to bring the final heir of the Davidic kingdom. And we see that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Now this is different both from how the Holy Spirit interacted with mankind in the Old Testament and during the Church Age. In fact, John's filling of the Holy Spirit is representative of the Kingdom Age, in which they will be filled their entire lives. And have as much of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit has of them. There will be no swaying in the kingdom. There will be no times where we spend unfilled by the Holy Spirit. We are always indwelled, but the indwelling means that the Holy Spirit is in us. We have all of the Holy Spirit, but the filling refers to how much of the Holy, how much of us the Holy Spirit has. Uh, I don't have too much time to get into this in the interest of time, but I left an essay in the foyer if you'd like to pick that up on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mark, I'm sure you'll love that. All right. But he had a special job, a special task, and that is to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And as the forerunner, he has the three tasks of bringing repentance. To Israel, restoration to Israel, and reception of the Messiah by Israel. And he does this in the spirit of Elijah. This is a dirash uh, fulfillment, meaning that it is a literal prophecy in the Old Testament, but it's fulfilled applicationally here. This is not a literal fulfillment, it still awaits its literal fulfillment at the time of restoration when the new covenant is realized by Israel at the end of the tribulation period. But here, the author is making an application saying in the same way as Elijah will come, so John is coming before Jesus or before the Messiah here. So the prophecy in Micah 4 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this is the wonderful day of the Lord here that we are encountering in Luke. It says he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, Micah is talking about a complete revival among Israel. But what Luke is talking about is a preparation of the remnant of Israel, those who are believers in the day of Jesus Christ's First advent. They are being prepared for physical and spiritual salvation, just as the remnant, which in the last day will be the entire house of Israel, will be spared physically and spiritually by Jesus Christ at his second advent. And so here in Luke 6, 1.16, it says, he will turn many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Not all of the sons, many sons. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His duty, his job, is to prepare people to accept the Messiah when he is revealed. And he does that very effectively, as we will see in two weeks. Second, we have another visitation by Gabriel, this time to Mary. He arrives to Mary in Nazareth and tells her that she will bear a male child as a virgin and that he will be the eternal son of God. Now, Nazareth was a very small town, about 2,000 residents, and you don't read about it in the Old Testament because it was established after the return from Babylon. And it was established by some descendants of David, who called their town Branch Town, because they were the branch of David, and they expected the Savior to come up out of their town. Now, he does not come up out of their town, but he does grow up in Nazareth. It says here in Jeremiah 33:15. this is where they got that phrase from. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Now, this child that Mary is promised is going to be her child alone with the Holy Spirit, not by another man. She will be a virgin when she bears this child. And it is important here that it is a male child because this is the fulfillment of the oldest prophecy in scripture. Genesis 3.15, the curse on the serpent, this promise of redemption to mankind. It says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It is specific here that this is the seed of the female. now. You don't know from reading Genesis how this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And it is always stunning to see just how perfectly God fulfills his word. It's almost as if he knows the beginning from the end. When he says here, yes, that was a joke. (laughs) When he says here, her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There is the expectation of a singular seed fulfillment. And here, Mary has been told, she is the fulfillment of this prophecy. She is the woman whose seed will bring redemption to the world. And he will be great, and he will be the eternal son of God. In Psalm two, seven through eight, we see this, Combination of the messianic promises with the Son of God, now the uh, rabbis didn 't have a great explanation for this before the or before the first advent of Christ, and the unbelieving rabbis today still don 't have a good explanation for this, but those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ recognize that this is the fulfillment of psalm two seven and uh, first part of eight, I believe as well. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, the first part has already happened. The second part of this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. This this falls into the category of the law of double reference meaning there are multiple prophecies in one prophetic section. Half of it has been fulfilled, but he is the heir uh, to the nations, and he will get the ends of the earth as his possession. And he is said to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. When this angel brings this promise to Mary, he tells her that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is a uniting of the throne of David with the Son of God, which gives an answer to how this eternal descendant can be eternal. How can one ruler sit on the throne? for an eternity, unless he is God himself. So this is that the answer to that Davidic covenant, Mary is told she is giving birth to the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. No, I did have it here. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. All right. After this, Mary goes and visits her cousin. Now, her cousin was over 40 years older than her. It says that Elizabeth was, where is it, well, she was advanced in age, which in Hebrew lingo basically means she's over 60. So sorry to you ladies who are over 60. Hebrews would say you are advanced in age. Uh, But that simply means you are unable to bear children anymore. Now, Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. So she's kind of got two things going against her. She's barren and she's too old to have kids anyway. So this is a double miracle, you could say, that Elizabeth is now six months pregnant at the time Mary goes to visit her. And her son is John, the forerunner to the Messiah, whose duty is to identify the Messiah. And he begins his job even in the womb. Because when Elizabeth first hears Mary's voice upon her arrival, John leaps for joy in her womb. Now, as much as this is a good argument for life beginning at conception, that's not actually Luke's purpose in identifying what John was doing in the womb of his mother. But when John identified the Messiah from the womb of Elizabeth, before Mary said anything about the promise that she had been given by the angel, Elizabeth knew Mary's situation. And Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Spirit, began to prophesy. And in her prophecy, she blesses Mary's faith. Now you can almost imagine that uh, Zacharias might be sitting there, mute, unable to do anything, for his lack of faith in the promise that he had been given by an angel. And here Elizabeth says to Mary, bless you who was faithful. And see, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Blessed is she for her faith. Hebrews 11.6. Now, Hebrews, some people, mostly Greek scholars, believe was written by Luke. Uh, Other people believe it was written by Paul. Uh, But we see something very similar here in Hebrews 11.6, where the writer says, Without faith it is impossible, impossible to believe him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, Mary is being rewarded for her faith by this blessing from Elizabeth. Elizabeth also blesses the Savior, the Lord, and she says that she herself is also blessed that the Lord has visited her. But then Mary begins a song, which is much like Hannah's song from the Old Testament, But she praises God, who is her personal savior. Now, there is a heresy in a very large Christian sect that says Mary was sinless, that she was also conceived of a virgin, and so she herself is also sinless as Christ was. This cannot be because in Luke 1.47, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Only sinners need saviors. Mary recognizes her sin, and it's exactly her humility that made it convenient. No. It's exactly because of her humility that she was favored of God and blessed with this great blessing. Had she been um, a woman of high standing, perhaps God would have chosen someone else, because as we will see, God's purpose is to bring about the savior of this world in a humble situation. We see that especially in Luke chapter 2. Now Mary's focus is also on the remnant of Israel, the believing members of the house of Israel. Because as she goes on singing, demonstrating great knowledge of the scripture, She does not make the universal statement of blessing that some of us sing in Christmas songs. Instead, she divides up these blessings to those who will believe in God. For example, in verse 50, she says, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him, not towards all, but to those who will come to him in faith. And the Song of Mary also recognizes that God is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant to his people. The Abrahamic covenant promises land, seed, and blessing. And these are all eternal things, land, seed, and blessing. But notice that through all of these covenant fulfillments in the gospels, the land aspect is minimized, if not absent, because his purpose in the first coming is not to fulfill the promises of the land covenant to Israel, but to fulfill the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in its second two parts, and the Mosaic covenant. All right, now we have two birth narratives, just as we had two announcements. The first is John. John is six months older than Jesus. And eight days after he is born, his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, bring him to be circumcised in the temple. This is something that as faithful Jews, they would have done. Faithful under the law and faithful uh, as Jews because the circumcision is both the sign of the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant. They are being faithful to both. But when they bring him for circumcision on the eighth day, they are also expected to name him. And the one, present, or the one, uh, the one who is performing the circumcision will announce his name. And as he is about to announce his name being Zacharias, Elizabeth stops him and says, no, but his name is John. She is demonstrating her faith in what the angel had told Zacharias. Now, it is uncommon in Jewish custom to name a child after uh, a name that is not of a relative. In some sects, you can't even name them after a living relative. This relative has to be dead. That was not true here because they were trying to name him after the father, Zacharias. So they turned to Zacharias basically expecting that uh, his wife is being disobedient and rebellious because he is conveniently mute. So he gets a writing tablet and says, no, his name will be John. And in demonstrating his faith, his obedience is rewarded. And when his obedience is rewarded, his tongue is loosed, And he is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy. We kind of get the sense here that the Holy Spirit is beginning a more active role as the Messiah arrives on the earth. In Luke 1.68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant." Now, this is at the circumcision of his son, John, and he begins prophesying about the Savior, Jesus, who is still three months from being born. He is raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He will show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, he is bringing about the new covenant. The new covenant is one we have not discussed much yet. It's found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a united kingdom once again. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This will not be like the Mosaic covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer will there be a need to learn these things and to be disciplined in practicing these things, but the people who have been renewed under the new covenant, the blood of Christ, will do these things naturally, having his nature and not a sin nature. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this has not been brought to completion yet. Though we do experience these blessings of the new covenant, because we are related to the Savior, the ratifier of this new covenant, there is still a need to teach and to learn. We share the gospel with one another. We learn more about God. But when this is fulfilled to Israel at the second coming of Christ and they are restored to their land and the king is ruling over them, then this portion of the new covenant will be fulfilled. However, the last part here, which I have darkened, has been fulfilled. We have full forgiveness of our sins. Our iniquity is remembered no more. When we are found in Christ who is the new covenant? We have perfect access to God being perfectly cleansed by his blood. And so the new covenant promises three things a united kingdom of Israel, perfect obedience, and forgiveness of sins. The third part has been fulfilled to us, the first two have not, and they cannot be fulfilled to the church, in the church, or by the church, but they will be fulfilled to Israel. In Isaiah 9, 6, we read, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't remember why I put this verse in there, but it is great. All right, the the, uh, angel Gabriel makes a third visit, this time in a dream, and this time to Joseph. Now, when the angel visits Joseph, he is contemplating divorcing Mary. Now, you might say, how can they be divorced if they're not married yet? Legally, they are. A betrothal is a legal marriage. It awaits consummation after the marriage feast, but they are legally bound. In Matthew 1.19, it says, Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, the issue here is how can you keep a pregnancy secret? And how do you send someone away without disgracing them when the penalty for their perceived crime is death, death by stoning. And I think this is why he hasn't done anything yet. He is in quite a conundrum. He is between a rock and a hard place, you might say. But the angel comes to him and tells him, don't fear. Joseph's fear here is probably more about his situation than the angel, just as Mary's was. But the angel tells him he needs to be faithful in a few things. He needs to fulfill his marriage vow. He hasn't yet given an explanation, but Joseph is receptive to this. He needs to fulfill his marriage vow to Mary. And then he needs to name this child Yeshua, Jesus in English. This name is a Hebrew word from the root to save. It's a play on words in the statement by the angel. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save Yashia, his people, from their sins. Keep in mind, here is a new covenant focus again. Salvation, not physical, but spiritual. And then he assures... Joseph, that she has not been unfaithful, but that by means of the Holy Spirit, this child has been conceived. And so her birth will be a virgin birth. Now this in the account of Matthew, you'll remember, is the answer to the problem presented in the uh, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. That issue of the Davidic line not able to be inherited by a descendant of Jeconiah. Had Mary conceived a child with Joseph, this child would be disinherited from the uh, the ability to inherit the throne of David. So here, this is a blessing. That although Jeconiah, Joseph's great-great-great-great-grandfather, was so unfaithful that God said no descendant of his will ever sit on the throne. God has still allowed Joseph to raise the descendant who will sit on the throne, who will be the descendant of Mary and not of Joseph. Now here in Matthew and not in Luke, Isaiah 7.14 is quoted, which speaks of the virgin birth. And you might wonder, why is this not quoted in Luke, but it is quoted in Matthew and it has everything to do with the character of Matthew? Where Luke was concerned with the fulfillment of Genesis 3:15, a promise to the whole world, Luke writing to a Greek audience not part of Israel, here Matthew is concerned with a promise given to Israel. The virgin birth is a sign of God's promise to the house of David that they will not fail to have a descendant provided to them. In Isaiah 7:13 and 14 we read, then he said, that is Isaiah, listen now, O house of David, it is too, or is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child, and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." So this is a sign, but we might ask, a sign of what? For that, we look at the whole context of Isaiah 7, and we see that the house of David, the southern kingdom of Judah, is under threat by the northern kingdom, which has made an alliance with the king of Syria. And they have conspired to dethrone Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was not a very good dude, but he is a descendant of David, and he will not be dethroned by one who is not a descendant of David. And so God tells Ahaz, rather than seeking assistance of Assyria, why don't you seek the assistance of God? God says to Ahaz to test him, to ask him for a sign, as low as Sheol, as high as the heavens. And Ahaz, feigning respect for God, says, basically, I would never test you. And then he's uh, quoting from Deuteronomy, where it says not to test the Lord your God. But that does not say, "Do uh, do not refuse a offer from God to have a sign. Ahaz doesn't want a sign because he wants Assyria's assistance and not God's. And so God is rebuking Ahaz when he gives this prophecy. But rather than addressing Ahaz in this prophecy, he addresses the house of David. He changes to a plural form and is showing that he will have a sign of his perseverance in faithfulness towards the house of David, that until a virgin bears a sign or a child, the house of David will remain. And then he switches back to the singular, speaking to Ahaz and tells Ahaz that until Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, which means the remnant will return, until he reaches the age of maturity, or rather by the time he reaches the age of maturity, the northern kingdom and Syria will have been deposed. Now, Shear Jashub was about five years old when Assyria deposed the northern king and the king of Syria. That was 722 BC when the northern kingdom fell. God used Assyria to bring this about. But it was not Assyria who saved Ahaz. It was God. But that was a second prophecy in a singular prophetic paragraph. The first part of the prophecy is not fulfilled for another 700 plus years. But it is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. And this is because, the reason why Matthew shares this, rather, is because Jesus is the promised descendant of David who can take the throne. Matthew is concerned with that Davidic line in a way that Luke is not, because Luke's audience is not. All right. Back to Luke We have this issue of, what year was Jesus born? We might say just 1 BC or 1 AD, because this is church tradition, but a lot of church traditions are not worth their weight in salt, especially since Herod, the only Herod that we know of, died in 4 BC. How do we get around this? Well, it's not hard to say the church is wrong. It would be impossible to say the Bible is wrong. The Bible says this was Herod. So we shift our date. This happened when Herod was alive. So it must have been before 4 BC. Also, Josephus, which is fairly trustworthy, tells us that Herod left Jerusalem for the last time in 5 BC, a year before his death. But when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, they encounter Herod. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This had to have happened before 5 BC. Matthew 2.16 says, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So because of the time when the Magi came to see him, he determined that this king of the Jews would be two years old by now. So before 5 B.C., Jesus Christ was two years old. This makes churches or the, uh, those who hold to church tradition pretty nervous. It should not make us nervous. As well, we know when the census was sent out by uh, Caesar Augustus during the days of Quirinius, it was sent out in 8 BC. So this birth of Christ had to happen after 8 B.C. So we end up with a date somewhere between 7 B.C. and 6 B.C. This is actually not an issue because some sources date the death of Christ to 27 A.D. I think this is a pretty good date. That was likely when the Messiah was crucified, 27 A.D., and he was likely born sometime in the winter season of 7 to 6 B.C. And I say the winter season because in Luke 2.8, it says the shepherds were in the fields tending their sheep. This is only really possible between October and April. During the other months of the year, it's just too dry, and there's not much out there for them to eat. Towards March... It's a little too harsh of a weather for them to just be staying out there with their sheep. This probably happened sometime between December and February. I lean a little more towards the January, February, March dates, as I'll explain why when we get to the announcement to the shepherds. But we can be pretty confident about the date and even the season of Jesus Christ's birth. So, Jesus was two before Herod left Jerusalem in 5 B.C. And he was born after the census of 8 B.C. He was born during the rainy seasons between 7 and 6 B.C. That's pretty precise. And he was born in Bethlehem. Now, this happened because of that census sent out by Caesar Augustus. But it happened to fulfill prophecy. Because in Micah 5.2, it was prophesied that one who would rule over Israel, um, who was coming forth from long ago from the days of eternity, which could only be the God-man, Jesus Christ, Messiah of Israel, was going to come out of Bethlehem. And it comes out of Bethlehem, which was too little to be among the clans of Judah, a humble clan, a humble city. And after Jesus Christ is born, angels go and announce this birth to a this crowd of shepherds that we saw a little earlier. This time, the angel is not identified. That's either because it is not Gabriel or because the shepherds did not receive the identity of the angel, so it's really impossible even to speculate. This could have been Gabriel, it could have been a different angel. But what's important here is that it is accompanied by the glory of the Lord. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is born, and the glory of the Lord, which is God among men, Shekinah glory, is together with the angel at this announcement. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. As well, it is said that this is not only the Savior, but this is the anointed Lord. He is identified as a man and as God. It says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ. And this is appositionally identified as God. This one who is a Savior, this one who is the anointed of God, is himself the Lord. We've been studying Genesis, and we see that Eve made this improper application of her son Cain, Here, the angels are announcing that this one who is the promised seed is himself the Lord. He is God. And they are given two signs for how they will identify this child. It will be wrapped in cloths, and it will be laying in a manger. Now, a child wrapped in cloths is not that odd, but a child laying in a feeding trough for animals is a little odd. Now these being shepherds would probably know where the stables are, that they are able to go and search them out to find which one has a baby laying in a manger wrapped in cloths, and I guarantee you there was probably only one that night. But it's interesting the way the text describes his wrapping in swaddling cloths you might not think anything of this, and so you might wonder why is this detail even brought up? Well, it's brought up, I think, because of what kind of shepherds these are. Given their location and given the time of year, these are probably the shepherds between Jerusalem and Bethlehem which are tending the Passover flock. They are preparing the Passover lambs. And these angels come to announce to them that the savior of the world, the final Passover lamb has just been born. So they leave the Passover lambs that they are tending to go to the Passover lamb and they become the very first to worship the king of Israel. And they find him laying in a manger and wrapped in cloths in a cave, which was used as a stable. Much in the same way as after he becomes this Passover lamb, he will once again be wrapped in burial cloths and laid in a cave. But rather than his humble entrance into the world, in a stable used for animals, he will be laid in the cave of a rich man his humiliation will be over and his glorification will have begun, having finished his task on earth. And so we know that just how John identifies him, he is identified here in Matthew. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, Susanna, we're done 10 minutes early. Next week, the Messiah's youth. We'll read Luke 2. Actually, we'll finish up Luke 2, and we'll finish up Matthew 2 as well. So please read those sections and in the student manual lessons 12 through 18. And I'll see you all here again next week. All right, let's pray.